And I hope that is the prayer that is flowing from your heart this morning. Holy Jesus, grant us grace in that sacrifice to place all our trust for life renewed, for pardoned sin, and promised good. That the grace of God is so sufficient, so complete, so necessary, that not only does it include the sacrifice that Christ himself made, but the very grace that we need to receive that sacrifice in faith and with an attitude of humility and repentance. Holy Jesus, grant us such grace today. As we continue in our study of the book of Hebrews, the closing chapters of Hebrews together, I'd invite you to follow along as I read from Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. We'll be reading together verses 4 through 6. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1009. I would also point out that there is a, a, a translation from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, the 2020 edition, that I printed on the third panel of your bulletin. Uh, we'll make reference to that a little bit later on in terms of the importance of what that very literal translation conveys in a helpful fashion. So I just would mention that that is there in your bulletin as well. So Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training us in righteousness May we receive God's word to us today by the working of his spirit within. Please join me in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, even reading these few brief verses this morning, they've already made an impact upon our hearts. They are remarkable verses. They are unapologetic verses. They are demanding verses, but they are also grace-filled verses. And so we pray, O oh God, that by the work of your Spirit, as he guides us to Jesus, we would understand the grace that is ours, even in this series of commandments given to us today. Father, bless us, strengthen us, we ask, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for 12 remarkable chapters, the anonymous writer of Hebrews has given us this remarkable doctrinal foundation, this important foundation in the essence of the gospel, even that finished sacrifice that we've sung about a few moments ago, that sacrifice by which Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we might be forgiven by Almighty God. 
But as we began to see last week, upon that foundation of the gospel, the writer here in the 13th chapter turns to helping us see the kind of life that is to be built upon that foundation. That the foundation that has been given sets the tone and the parameters for a certain way of life that indeed flows out of who Christ is for us and the grace that has been showered upon us through Jesus. The life and the foundation work together and demonstrate ultimately the full extent of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Now last week as we began to study this life that is built upon the foundation of the gospel, we saw that the writer began with the issue of love, brotherly love in particular. And even when he talks about loving the stranger, he's probably talking about the stranger who's also a brother. And when he talks about the one who is in prison, he's talking about the one who's in prison for the sake of the gospel with whom we are to have compassion and sympathy. And so he started with the issue of relational love, interpersonal love. And as we mentioned last time, it's so significant to understand why he would start there. There is no authentically Christian life that doesn't begin with a life of love. Loving especially those who are also part of the household of faith, those who have been recipients of God's amazing mercy through Jesus Christ. And so he starts with interpersonal love. But here in verses four through six, he really does shift, doesn't he? Because here the focus as he talks about marriage and sexuality, and and the love of money. He's here not talking about interpersonal love, but rather talking about personal responsibility. He's talking about these aspects of life, in some sense, as we think about contentment, that are not very um, noticeable by anyone else. Other people may not be able to observe these things largely at all, but nonetheless, they are part of our discipline, part of our responsibility before the Lord. Now, right off the bat, in light of this shift, We understand how broad the authority of God is and how extensive his grace to us in Christ truly is. Because here we're given this mindset already that as we see this life portrayed, that it is as broad as every sphere that we could possibly contemplate. So here is interpersonal relationships. Here is personal responsibility. In these verses, we see outward actions. We see inner attitudes. In these verses, we see ways in which we are to embrace certain things and also ways in which we are to reject certain things and so we have this sense of how wide the authority of God is but also how remarkably extensive his grace is we might put it this way the first 12 chapters have reminded us of the immense price that God has paid to redeem you the blood of his son The true sacrifice given for sinners has been shed for you. Now what the writer is telling us is that God will get everything that he has paid for. He will have all of you. You place an Amazon order. It's for ten things. The box shows up. Your your app goes off. It's been delivered. And you open up the box and you find there are only five of the ten things. And yet the invoice tells you as you search it out online, everything's been given. And you call up customer service and say, well, five out of ten is pretty good. You say, that's not what I've paid for. I paid for all of this. I won't take just a part. God has paid the greatest price of all to redeem you for himself. And so he will have all of you. 
every part of you, leaving none of you behind. Interpersonal relationships and also personal responsibility. Now, as we think about these issues of marriage and sexuality and the love of money, we need to understand right off the bat that the writer shows to us that contentment is the key to growth in grace in these particular areas of personal responsibility. The writer does something here that is really unique in his approach in this chapter. It's not what he's done in the first three verses, and it's not what he's going to do when he comes to verse 7. He actually gives us a list of things here, and he doesn't use verbs. Now, the English um, translators have supplied verbs, and understandably so, And the reason I put the New American Standard Version of the Bible 2020 in your bulletin is to give you some sense of how this works itself out. The New American Standard Version is a very literal translation. And the parts that I've underlined are parts that are in italics in the text because those are words that the translators have supplied. They're not part of the original Greek. The original Greek just gives us this very abrupt list of things. Honor marriage. Bed undefiled, love of money, none of it. (laughs) And so it's left to us to sort of supply the verbs and particularly to put them in terms of commands. Now, this abrupt list, I think, gives us a sense of urgency. These things are very urgent matters, and as we're going to see, they're actually military overtones to to this allusion to Joshua's experience that help us get a sense of marching orders, right? This abrupt and urgent list of things that we are to embrace in terms of personal responsibility. But what it also does then is it helps us to realize that the only verb he does supply, the participle being content, is not only related to the love of money, but to everything that he's talking about in these verses. The contentedness relates just as much to honoring marriage, to having the marriage bed undefiled, as it does to setting aside the love of money. Contentment is the key. Contentment means to submit our wills to God's purposes and plans for us. That the God who rules over everything has a purpose and a plan. And and, and it is our part not to fight and struggle against, but rather to walk in conformity to it. Now we have seen the mystery of God's providence throughout our study of these latter chapters of Hebrews. Right? We, we were confronted with it when we were given these different heroes of the faith and we saw back to back two men, Abel and Enoch both of whom were commended for their faith by God. Abel was killed by his brother. Enoch never experienced death at all, but rather was translated directly to glory. Right? Two very different paths, but nonetheless these two men united by the reality they were commended for their faith. And so we were reminded that God has very different paths for us. There are some things, right, that are the same for us all. The way of faith, trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus. But the way in which this is spelled out in our lives particularly varies tremendously. So we were reminded that when the writer tells us that we are to run with perseverance, the race marked off for us. Right? We're running a race, and there's a sense in which, again, many of the rules apply universally to all believers. But that course, you see, is different for each of us. Some of us has a, have a longer duration to run. For some of us, there are more hills and valleys. For some of us, there are obstacles to overcome. 
right? And that's part of God's providence, that what he does for one, he may not do for another. We ran into that also in chapter 12. When the writer was telling us about God's fatherly discipline and quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, he says, perhaps it's the case that you are treating lightly God's discipline, that you are being wearied by his reproof. In other words, there are moments when God is disciplining us as a father, raising us up to greater strength in Christ, that again, we are tempted to treat it lightly or even to be broken by it rather than to be built by it. These are all ways that we struggle, you see, against God's providence. God's particular details of how our lives unfold. And now the writer is saying, this is what you need, you see, if you are to be able to honor marriage, keep the marriage bed pure, and to set aside the love of money. You need to have this strong and abiding sense of contentment. And the word he uses is in terms of the things that are now or available, not so much the things we have, Right? But the things that are now, the things that are part of our current state, right this very moment. He's saying you need to be content with what God has for you now, this season, this moment, this condition that you're in. And as you come more and more to accept the details of God's unfolding plan for your life right now, you'll not be bound up with the things that you don't have or the things that you long for so much that you actually miss the present blessings of God in this current moment. So significant is contentment that the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs in his writing, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says this. He says, you worship God more by this than when you come to hear a sermon or spend an hour in prayer. Of course, the Puritans were all about sermons and prayer, but he says you'd worship God more in this than in listening to a sermon or spending time in prayer. These are acts of God's worship, but they're only external acts of worship. But this is the soul's worship, to subject itself thus to God. You who often will worship God by hearing and praying and yet afterwards will be stubborn and discontented, know that God does not regard such worship. He will rather have the soul's worship, the subjecting of your soul, your heart, unto him. Isn't that amazing? But that's what the writer is saying here. Contentment is the key. He's been helping us to see contentment in God's providence all along. And now he says, particularly in this area of, of personal responsibility, it is absolutely essential that we are content with where God has us if we're to be able to embrace these responsibilities. Now seeking contentment in these areas, especially in this broken and sinful world, is like fighting a war. Notice as he calls upon us to be content, where he points us for strength to possess this contentment. He says in verse 5, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now it's obvious why we read from Joshua chapter 1 earlier in our service. And for the sake of time, I didn't point out when I read Joshua chapter 1 that Joshua chapter 1 is actually a, a, a very um, a complete fulfillment of a promise that God made to Joshua when Moses was still alive that's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 31, where God used Moses to tell Joshua, I will be with you, I will never forsake you, be strong and courageous. 
So here we find that when the writer wants us to have power to find contentment in our lives, he says, this is what we need to know, that just like God promised his presence to Joshua when he was about to lead the people to conquer the land of promise, so too God's presence will be with you as you seek to conquer these prevailing temptations towards discontentment, towards grumbling in light of God's providence in your life. But you see, it's fighting a war. He's describing here the war for contentment. Now, we don't want to skirt over the amazing thing that he does. It is so clear in Deuteronomy 31 and in Joshua chapter 1 that God's promise is specifically to Joshua. Right? It is really, really clear. He doesn't just address Joshua and then talk about his presence right, with all the people. I will not leave or forsake you broadly. Now, what he does for Joshua certainly is impactful. It helps the people as a whole. He will lead them. But nonetheless, he is highlighting Joshua's role. Joshua is the hero. He's the leader. He's the remarkable figure raised up in courage and strength by the power and presence of God to do these great things. Now the writer of Hebrews is taking what was given only to Joshua and he's applying it to all of us, all of us in the church of Jesus Christ. We are God's heroes. We are those called upon by his grace and power to show strength and courage to enter into this war with might and confidence Because God's presence through the spirit of the resurrected Christ indwells us and guides us and empowers us and produces fruit within us. It is a war. Joshua was called upon to fight in the world and to fight with the world. And indeed, we are called upon to fight in the midst of the world and to fight indeed with the world. Because our world has no contentment, no contentment in its Failure to submit itself to God. And in fact, we see the fullest extent of that lack of contentment in God today. As we think about how it is that people would even think that they can divine their own gender, showing a discontentment with the gender assigned to them, not at birth, but at conception by a sovereign and provident God. And if people are discontented with that fundamental assignment that God has given to them, how much more are they discontented with all the details of life? That's the world we're in. And that's the world we're called to fight for contentment in the midst thereof. As Joshua was surrounded, so you and I are surrounded. But the mighty God who gave Joshua the victory will give you and me the victory as well. Because he promises to be with us even to this very day. Take hold of the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Take hold of the promises that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That indeed the fruit of the spirit is being produced within us because the spirit of Jesus dwells in the lives of all of those who belong to him. But notice then, if this is the promise that God makes, that we can respond to it with profound confidence and praises. So we say, we're told in verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isn't this amazing what the writer does here? There's a kind of conversation 
that he, he sets before us. On one hand, God is talking, right, through Moses and directly to Joshua in, in those passages we've mentioned. God talks, he makes his promises, and then he says, because God has said this, here's what we can say in turn. And he's using here Psalm 118. So God talks, we talk. God talks, as we find in the pages of the scripture, we talk back to God in response to God, also taking up the words of scripture. God gives promises. We in faith take hold of them and confidently say, yes, God is my helper. Yes, he is the one who strengthens me. Because of this, I can proclaim the glorious truth that man can do nothing to me. And we think of that in our present day. What can man do to me if I am walking with Christ, if I am trusting his spirit, if I am setting my way straight according to the pathway revealed in his word? What can man do to me? They cannot make us sin. They cannot lead us astray if the truth guides us. They cannot cause us to depart from God's path if indeed the example and power of Jesus empower us. Man can do nothing to us if indeed God is for us. The great ones of the world are as nothing compared to the greatness of our God. And as Paul says in a different context, if God be for us, who could ever be against us? Now, my friends, we find here that God's grace touches your inward desires as well as your outward actions. This is, this is part of what we need to realize when God speaks to us here about the issue of contentment. It's not only found in the language of contentment, this idea that God's grace touches us inwardly as well as outwardly. It's also found, for example, in the standard here regarding marriage in verse 4, marriage being held in honor. Isn't that an interesting choice of terms? To honor something is to respect it, to to set it apart, to give to it the, the reverence that it deserves, the specialness that it truly deserves. But it fundamentally is an attitude. Now, it issues in specific actions, but it begins as an attitude. So here he's saying that our attitude towards marriage is impacted by the gospel, uh, even as our inward contentment as an attitude, the heart's worship, to quote Jeremiah Burroughs, is also impacted by the gospel. But you need to see here in context that God's grace is not only about making you conform outwardly to certain patterns. But his grace is so amazing that it reaches into the depths of your being to change you from the inside out so that with authenticity and sincerity, who you are on the outside is an apt reflection of who you are becoming on the inside. And in the outside and the inside alike, you're showing forth Jesus. Now, the fact that God's grace touches us inwardly as well as outwardly, it reminds us on one hand the depth of sin, right? right? Sin is not just a laundry list of things on the outside, whether I do or don't do what I was supposed to do or not do. It certainly includes those things, but it actually begins inwardly. I would invite all of you back to our evening service tonight as we talk together about how Jesus teaches that it is out of the heart. Right, what comes from the inside of a man, that we are defiled. It starts on the inside. It is the root that needs to be addressed by grace, not only the fruit in our lives. So our condition is worse, perhaps, 
than we would ever dare imagine. But if our condition is desperately wicked, here's the remarkable thing. God's grace is even more sufficient than we had ever contemplated before because he's not content to just conforming us outwardly. Right? I get my dog by using treats to conform to my commands. Sometimes. <laughs> and if not, you have to throw another treat his way and maybe the second time he'll get it. God is doing far more than giving us little trinkets and treats to try to get us outwardly to conform. He's changing us inwardly. And that's what the writer needs us to see here so desperately. Now that's important, especially in our present context. Especially in light of sexuality and the wars that are raging around it in our day. Because there are Christians, including some in reformed denominations, who are saying that the only thing God cares about when it comes to sexual practice is the practice itself. That it doesn't matter what's going on inwardly. What matters is that we conform outwardly to God's requirements. And in particular, this is being used to to claim that those who have homosexual tendencies or inclinations that they don't necessarily need to fight against those inclinations or desires. The important thing is simply whether or not they conform outwardly to God's requirements. Now, we could look at that from a number of different directions here, but we just point out that very evidently, God is not content simply to address our outward actions. And it's a wonderful thing that God's grace is so sufficient That God's word, indeed, is a two-edged sword, right? Judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That God's spirit burrows so deep within our being that he is able to do what nothing else could ever do, which is to refashion us, to renovate us, to make us truly new creatures in Christ. And it is a terrible thing and a very improper view of sanctification that there would be some, even in reform circles, who would say, well, it's only the outside that matters. That you can retain the desires, you don't need to fight against the desires, and indeed some would go so far as to say that those desires are God-given, and so in that sense, add something to Christian experience. If God holds the actions to be an abomination, be certain that the attitudes that stir it are also abominable in his sight. And God, however, gives grace, grace for all of life outwardly and inwardly or like. This is not easy. It doesn't happen instantaneously. This will not be something as we contend against inward desires that we know are displeasing to God that will have this kind of constant and linear growth in our lives. We will have many setbacks in whatever particular form of desires we struggle with within our souls. But we need to take back, as I mentioned a moment ago, the idea that authenticity is not what our world says it is so often today. Right? We're told that to be authentic is to take who I am by nature and just let it loose. And as I let it loose, the people around me better well accept it because they need to accept me and tolerate me for who I am. One of my favorite authors and speakers uh, said in a recent podcast, do you know according to that definition, who the most authentic people are in our culture. Do you know where you can find the most authentic people if that's the real standard? Just take me as I am in light of the impulses that are built into me. They're sitting in jail right now, right? Because they've been authentic. No impulse control, right? They just go with it. 
and they say to the world around them, you just need to take me as I am. Well, that, that's often not the case. We're unwilling to take them as they are because they cause hurt and pain. So we throw them in jail, but they've been authentic. We're not to be authentic in that light. Authenticity comes when God changes us, when he makes us new on the inside, when he makes us to be like Jesus within our souls, when he takes away the heart of stone and he places within us the heart of flesh that beats, beats, beats in conformity with his will and the pleasure that we bring to our God when we walk in his ways. And in light of that new heart then, we are able more and more to live authentically with who we are in our new identity, putting off the old, rejoicing in the new, and walking now in fullness of life. And then we find here as well that God's commands and judgments reveal how serious he is about things that our world treats lightly. But broadly speaking, we might think about the areas of personal responsibility here. We might associate them with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but also the tenth commandment, uh, you shall not covet, because remember that commandment includes not only coveting your neighbor's house, but also coveting your neighbor's wife or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we find here the seventh commandment, the tenth commandment at least mentioned. Uh, The first few verses, we really saw the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, in terms of its positive call upon us to look out for the welfare in practical terms of those for whom we have brotherly love. This makes us very mindful here that if God would speak by way of commandment, that this must mean it's very serious to him. Uh, It matters to him, and indeed, the writer here accentuates how much it matters to him because he tells us here in verse 4, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Judgment is pronounced against those who depart from God's ways and defy God's ways in this particular area of personal responsibility. Now, we need to understand here that it's not so much that God is particularly serious or firm about sexuality, but rather that we have not been serious enough about understanding God's standards for sexuality. This is not a reflection of God being particularly rigid in this specific area, but rather that as people we are far too loose and careless regarding such sin. When he talks here about sexual morality, or as the term used to be used, fornication, he's talking here about sex outside of marriage. And talking here about adulterous um, uh, activities, he's talking about sex that violates the boundaries of marriage. But here he's reminding us that we can't take our marching orders from the world around us. And I think particularly of recent days, right? Uh, I don't watch Good Morning America, but it was all over other news outlets. The two Good Morning America um, uh, anchors right, who apparently developed uh, an adulterous relationship with one another and eventually each of them left um, their spouses of more than 10 years to go and form this new relationship, troubling enough. They were let go from their positions in light of the impropriety of this in a professional setting. But perhaps even more troubling than what they did was the response to it. You know, friends of the woman saying, well, you know, we're all supportive of this. We're just a little worried that she's given her heart away too freely. And, 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 and children from earlier marriages of these individuals saying, we're very supportive of, of them as they seek to do what makes them happy. Right? That's the world we live in where there's just no care. 
Right? We, we see these two vivacious and bright and beautiful and popular successful people and just going off into the sunset. Now we see pictures of where they're vacationing and all their public displays of affection. And we say the world just doesn't care about things like the boundaries of marriage. We need to reorient ourselves and say what the world doesn't care about at all God cares about immensely, so much so that we're reminded here that as, as is the case for all sin, God will judge this as sin because it is a departure from his purposes and ways. And this also means that we don't trust ourselves. We don't trust the world, but we also can't trust ourselves because we are very prone to coming up with excuses and justifications for why our circumstances are different from other people's. Why it might be a big deal for someone else to do these things, but it's not for us. We're okay. There's a special reason why. And so it is that we can't trust ourselves because of our bad thinking. Our hearts get entangled and often our bodies get excited. We need to remember it is not whether we feel guilty or not, but the reality that God holds as guilty those who break his law in this regard. Now here's the great hope, my friends. If there is judgment, then the writer has already shown us there is also forgiveness. And here's the great thing. It's not, again, that this is being set apart in any meaningful way from any other kind of sin, except insofar as we might be inclined to ignore it. But if there's judgment, there's forgiveness. If there's a penalty for sin, there is also grace to take away that penalty. Where is the grace to be found? It's to be found in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Because by God's will, we've been made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. It is through the new and living way made through his body, through his blood, that we are able to approach God. And in spite of the fact that in attitude and in action, we have gone against God's will and deserve to be judged, we are nonetheless able to approach the glory presence of our God, clothed in Christ, forgiven of our sin, if we will only trust in him. Are you trusting in him? If you are, then yes, God judges such sins, but he has judged that sin already in his son. He will always judge sin. Our God is a consuming fire, the writer has told us. He's jealous He wants all of us, and when we don't give all of us, there must be a cost that is paid. But here's the glorious thing. Jesus paid the price. Jesus took to himself the debt of your transgressions. Jesus suffered in his own being that which you ought to have suffered in your being now and forevermore. He took it all. And so your soul is able to arise and with confidence to draw near to God and to point to the wounds that Jesus received on Calvary's tree as the ground of your acceptance in the Father's sight. See that destined day arise. See the willing sacrifice. Jesus, to redeem our loss, shed his blood upon that shameful cross. But you know, there's judgment And with judgment, there is forgiveness. But how does forgiveness come? It comes through repentance. Where does repentance come from? Treating seriously the things God treats seriously. There will be no repentance if you ignore God's will, if you presume upon his grace. So start there. The writer says this is what we deserve because God treats all sin seriously. Repent of it. Take it seriously too. 
Don't treat it like some light thing. You know what a heavy thing it was? It was such a heavy thing that God's son needed to take human nature to himself and die on a Roman implement of torture to redeem you from it. You think God doesn't take it seriously? He certainly does. But as you take it seriously today, and as you cry out to God, God, forgive me, I've done wrong. God, forgive me, I've thought wrong. God, forgive me, I've been discontented, and that has been wrong. As you call out to God today, know that he has grace for you and for all in Christ. Receive that grace. Know it's cleansing. And understand that God has a place even for those who sin in the areas of personal responsibility, marriage, sexuality, and the love of money. Please join me in prayer. Truly, God, to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, to even Jesus belong glory and honor dominion, power, and strength both now and forevermore. We are in awe that you would love us so wonderfully, dear God, that as we come to understand and come to grips with the fact that our sin is worse than we ever conceived of beforehand, that that just means your grace is greater than we ever dared imagine. Father, we've not yet exhausted all that you have for us in these verses. But as we've looked at them together, they have been convicting and challenging, but also filled with grace because they remind us of all that you have for us in glorious supply, lavish supply through Jesus. And help us to know, O oh God, today of the grace that is ours in him. For though you must judge sin, you have judged our sin in him who died for us. Give us grace, Lord, to put our trust in Christ's work today and always, for we ask it in his name. Amen. This time I'd ask that those who are helping to distribute the Lord's Supper, administer, join me here at the front of the auditorium. <clears throat>